that Jesus tells her the hour is fast coming when the place of worship will be inconsequential because God is spirit and any place can become a holy place, a thin place, even this place. That's our very high intention. That as we engage with Dr. Taylor's work here, this place will become a thin place. Welcome to a Thin Place podcast with Dr. Larry Taylor. Hi, I'm Mike Young. I read an interesting article this week in The Atlantic in which they interviewed Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Community Church in Atlanta, Georgia. Stanley is the son of televangelist and former Southern Baptist Convention president Charles Stanley. 37,000 people attend North Point services each weekend at its main campus and nine satellite campuses. I was very intrigued with this article for many reasons, one of which is I have attended Andy Stanley's Drive Conference a couple of times. It's an annual training event for church leadership. While he and his church are well right of my position theologically, I always came away amazed at how well they did community and church. Everything from the greeters in the expansive parking lots to the welcome stations just inside the building to the services themselves, everything was an offering of hospitality to those who are guests and specifically those who are not yet followers of Jesus. When I allowed my liberal, cynical self to actually see what they were accomplishing in this regard, I was truly impressed and and amazed. Everything was so well done. The article was entitled, The Evangelical Reckoning Begins. The writer is attempting to explore the long-term impact on evangelicals tying themselves so closely to the Donald Trump administration. Stanley has done his best to stay out of the political fray. Early on in the pandemic, he and his leadership made the decision to not meet in person on their campuses until early 2021. According to the article, dozens of families left the church because of that decision. What was interesting to me was that Stanley said they were not upset because they were going to miss coming to church. They were upset because he had supposedly bought in to a political agenda. They were upset because Andy Stanley believed the, quote, Democrats narrative, end quote. Now, exit polls suggest that three quarters of white self-described evangelicals who voted chose Trump in the 2020 elections. It's no secret that Stanley's church was not part of the blue wave that flipped the state of Georgia. It is a firmly conservative evangelical congregation. In the article, Stanley refers to Donald Trump and says about his connection with evangelicals, I mean, Trump's not evangelical, but he owns them, and they've loved him. And then Stanley makes a funny observation where he likens that relationship to a lyric from Bob Seger's Night Moves song. 
Quote, I used her, she used me, but neither one cared. Close quote. Now, I'm not trying to drag us all into the political fray here on our podcast. Lord knows we're all tired of that. But Stanley points out one of the glaring motives behind this relationship between evangelicals and Donald Trump. They used each other to get what they wanted. Trump got elected and got the power that goes with that. And evangelicals got judicial appointments. The ends supposedly justify the means. The sermon today speaks directly to this struggle that people who follow Jesus have always dealt with from the very birth of the Christian church. It was a good lesson for me and gave me much to think about as we all negotiate these days. Here's Larry Taylor and Living as Saints in the Household of Caesar. At the very end of Paul's letter to the Philippians, he writes, All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Now that's what I call a fascinating sentence. Don't we wish we knew more about it? Just imagine Christians in the household of that tyrant Nero who enjoyed lighting his gardens at night with the burning bodies of Christians. Harry Emerson Fosdick was a pulpit master at the Riverside Church in New York City during the 20s and 30s. He had this wonderful sermon on the saints in Caesar's household that he entitled, Christians in Spite of Everything. Caesar's household was a general term referring to those who worked in government service. And saints was simply Paul's word for believers in Christ. Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote these words, and he knew firsthand that there were Christians, even in the service of Nero. Those people must have been Christians in spite of everything. They had learned to live for Christ in the world without being consumed by it. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Rome in the time of Paul. There is no decadence in the human imagination that Rome hadn't thought of. Boris Pasternak described first century Rome as a mass of filth convoluted in a triple knot. It was a challenge to live in that kind of world and not become a part of it. From the beginning, Christians had to face the problem of how to conduct themselves within the world. This led some Christians to cloister themselves behind thick walls in order to guard their virtue. The monastic movement bloomed and flourished during the Middle Ages. But the monastics discovered that even the monastery walls did not keep the devil from their souls. Other Christians continued to live in the world, and they too found it to be a difficult place to be a Christian. Today we are all saints in Caesar's household if we are followers of Christ. The world is Caesar's household, 
and the palace is rife with treachery and intrigue. How then are we to live? It's no easier today to live as a saint in Caesar's household than it was in Rome. But where did we ever get the idea that it would be comfortable to live for Christ? Paul says, we are not contending against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers of darkness, and against the hosts of wickedness. It isn't easy to live as a Christian in our self-indulgent society. It isn't easy to be a Christian businessman or woman in an economic system marked by greed and injustice. It isn't easy to be a Christian in the dormitory, in the office, in the classroom. After all, we're living in Caesar's household. How do you suppose the first Christians managed to keep their distinctiveness in a pagan environment? In some respects, our own age is more like those earliest centuries after Christ than it is like the age of Christendom. Christendom began with the baptism of the Emperor Constantine in the 4th century, and it ended sometime in the 19th century. We're living in a post-Christian era that has remarkable similarities to Paul's day. How did those earliest Christians finally undermine the ancient world's hopelessness and transform its culture? What did they have that we don't have? In a world that's sometimes too much with us, how do we live in Caesar's household without being absorbed by it? A few years ago, I heard the late Sam Proctor, pastor of the great Abyssinian Baptist Church in New York City and professor at Rutgers University, speaking to a group of ministers. And he noted that we frequently hear today that the world is going to hell in a leaky rowboat and that things are getting worse and worse. We are bedeviled by the chicken little syndrome, certain that the moral sky is falling. But he said we need to be careful about calling people back to the good old days. Our moral failures may be due more to improve sensitivities than tomorrow breakdown. Standards are higher today, so failures stand out sharper. Proctor said that, for instance, while abortion rates are deplorable in the past, they were hideous. And he added that by today's higher standards, the whole social register of who's who in the past would have been in jail. Will Rogers said the good old days aren't what they used to be and probably never was. The earliest Christians simply rejected the idea that their environment determined who they were. We're influenced today by Freud and the whole behaviorist school of psychology. We can either blame heredity or environment for making us what we are. Well, that's very convenient because it relieves us of any responsibility. But experience and common sense teach us that we are far more than just the results of heredity and environment. We are the products of a long series of choices which have routed us down the road we're traveling. 
Christians who have learned to live successfully as saints in Caesar's household have done so by discovering the power of God deep in their own souls. The kingdom of God, lo and behold, is within us. When we allow ourselves to be determined by our environment, then we take our cue for living from the external conditions of the world around us. Living for Christ has to do with being in the world, but not selling out to the world. God does not deliver us out of Caesar's household, but God does deliver us through it. God helps us take our cue for living from the power within us rather than the powers around us. To live and grow for Christ doesn't require that we live in a perfect environment. In fact, Christian living is all about winning a victory in the midst of a hostile environment. The gorgeous white lily does not require white sand in which to grow. It sprouts from the blackest loam soil. The arts have frequently flourished in the most unfavorable of environments. Mozart was so poor all his life that he was hardly ever more than one meal from starvation. But, said the theologian Karl Barth, the angels in heaven listen to Mozart. It's an agony to read the life of John Keats, the poet, because of his crippling poverty, but it is sheer ecstasy to read his poetry. These artists all refused to take their cue from their environment. They looked inward and upward rather than outward and downward. They created the new and the fresh and the beautiful out of the old and the stagnant and the ugly. Just consider the great books that have been written from prison. What is there in prison that would inspire great literature? And yet Paul was in prison when he wrote Philippians. Cervantes wrote Don Quixote from prison. John Bunyan was in the Bedford jail when he penned The Pilgrim's Progress. Diedrich Bonhoeffer was awaiting execution in a Nazi cell when he wrote Letters and Papers from Prison and shaped theological discussion for the next 50 years. These people all found no inspiration in their environment and so they turned inward to their souls and they found power and hope. Elizabeth Barrett Browning said, life develops from within. In his intercessory prayer for the disciples in John chapter 17, Jesus prays, I do not ask that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil one. In other words, let the saints live as saints in Caesar's household. The first generations of Christians had a sense of passage through the world. They were bound for a better place and a greater home. In the words of the book of Hebrews, they were strangers and exiles on the earth seeking a homeland, desiring a better country. As Christians, we are part of the company of the committed. God doesn't ask any of us to be saints in Caesar's household all by ourselves, 
There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Faith may be personal, but it isn't private. There were saints in Caesar's household, plural, not singular. We need a support group if we hope to live in Caesar's household. And for Christians, that support group is the church. The church is not expendable. There is no such thing as a churchless Christianity in the New Testament. We need the strength, the fellowship, and the company of God's people if we plan to live for Christ. I just couldn't count the times that I've heard you say in hospital rooms, in the intensive care waiting room, and in the treatment centers, I don't know how people make it without the church. Harry Emerson Fosdick said, if you go out vaguely expecting as an individual to be a Christian, Caesar's household will get you. But the constant temptation that we face as the church is to allow ourselves to be swallowed up by Caesar's household. Church historian Martin Marty at the University of Chicago reminds us that people who take opinion polls find very little significant difference between Christians and non-Christians on most of the great humane and ethical issues of the day. We hold practically the same opinions as people who make no claim to be a part of Christ's kingdom. This is the cultural captivity of the church. Caesar's household has claimed us. We are compromised. Jesus gave us these sparkling and unforgettable metaphors to remind us of what we're to be in the world. We are lights set on a hill for all to see. We are salt to flavor the society. We are leaven to change the whole loaf of humanity. We are sent forth as sheep among wolves. We are to be wise as serpents and gentle as doves. All these figures of speech have to do with being saints in Caesar's household. The title of a book written back in the 60s by Langdon Gilkey frames our whole question very succinctly. How can the church minister to the world without losing itself? How can we remain in the world without becoming of the world? How can we live in Caesar's household but live there as saints? The only possible way that we can hope to redeem Caesar's household is to bring to it something fresh, something powerful, something revolutionary. The world does not merely need an example, it needs a savior. Modern man is not man come of age at all. He is a secular savage. And he desperately needs Christ to transform his life. The church, unfortunately, has never been as revolutionary as her Lord. Richard Niebuhr, in his classic work on Christ and culture, gave the church five models of how the church has related to the world down through the centuries, how saints have lived in Caesar's household. And one of those models he called Christ against culture. It's the one we're most familiar with as Baptists. It calls on Christians to come out from the world and be separate. It assumes a totally hostile world. 
And it's certainly a model that we can document from the Scriptures. But how will the saints redeem the world if we forsake it? The church today has enough power and enough money to isolate itself in a Christian ghetto. But an affluent Christian ghetto will no more keep our souls from the devil than did the monastery walls. How can we work as leaven if we don't penetrate the loaf? Or as salt if we shun the world? Or as light if we flee the darkness? And what happens to the world when the church deserts it? When the church of Jesus shuts its outer door lest the roar of traffic drown the voice of prayer, May our prayers, Lord, make us ten times more aware that the world we banish is our Christian care. As saints, we just need a better model by which to relate to Caesar's household than Christ against culture. Let the church finally be known for what it's for. And that model is what Richard Niebuhr calls Christ transforming culture. It's what Jesus had in mind with his sparkling metaphors. Christ calls us to pass the salt and turn up the lights and trust the leaven to transform Caesar's household. And there is something revolutionary about that. A few years ago, I heard Jürgen Moltmann talking about the fall of the Berlin Wall and the reopening of Eastern Europe. And he said that although it appeared to be sudden and dramatic to Western eyes, the churches in the East German city of Leipzig had been praying for just such a thing for years. Salt, light, and leaven had done their work. All kinds of political and economic reasons have been given for the decline of communism and the easing of the Cold War. But of all the explanations I've heard, prayer is the best and the most radical. It really doesn't matter as Christians whether we're conservatives or liberals. What matters is whether we are radicals. Baptists have always been at their best when they were radical enough to disregard the world's standards of success and champion the truth of Scripture. Are we still radical enough to believe that the power of Christ can infiltrate the human heart as well as the corrupt structures of the world and transform them? It's only by remaining in the world with its institutions and its social groupings and its corporate structures that we can ever hope to redeem Caesar's household. But I would suggest to you that there are also redemptive elements even in Caesar's household. We have the advantage over that first generation of Christians because now the gospel has had 2,000 years to penetrate the society and transform it. And the world touched by the influence of Jesus is far more humane today than was the world into which he came 20 centuries ago. 
why God is even at work today beyond the church. He has to be because the church sometimes loses its voice. It becomes silent. Ernest Campbell has noted that the church has learned to lower its voice in order to raise its budget. When the church fails to speak out forcefully against evil and injustice and ignorance and greed, Jesus promised that the very stones of the street would cry out. Sometimes the church is confronted by groups outside the church whose conscience seems to be more Christian than the church's. As Christians, we have to ally ourselves with the other saving elements in the world, such as the arts and literature and benevolent institutions and peace groups and human rights organizations and justice movements. Why, God can even work through the general revelation beyond the church and the negative witness of mankind's misery when it's apart from Christ in order to transform the world. God may be renewing the church today from outside of the church. The presence of the church in the world is always a precarious existence, as tentative and as delicate as that of the saints who lived in Caesar's household. As Christians in the world, we are always exiles but faith is ever at its best on the edge of exile. As the Church of the Living Christ, we have a twofold mission in the world, a mission of word and a mission of deed. Often we stop with the words. The early church did not wait for Caesar's household to be redeemed before it could be embraced. The saints infiltrated the house of Caesar and transformed it. That's about as radical as anything I can imagine. Something revolutionary is going on when even the household of Caesar is not exempt from the transforming power of Christ. Even the demons become subject to the name of Jesus as we see Satan himself toppled from heaven. Such is the power of the revolutionary Word of God in our lives. Two young sisters were overheard discussing something they'd learned in Sunday school. And the older one said, I'm telling you, Barbara, the Bible does not end in Timothy. It ends in revolutions. Lord, we give you thanks for the transformation of life, for the spiritual revolution that we have known in Jesus Christ as he has illumined our life, forgiven our sin, placed us on kingdom ground, and told us to be witnesses, lights in the world. We pray for a revolution at the heart of every person, that every person today will have some opportunity to hear the saving gospel of Jesus and will respond to it. And we pray for the transformation of the structures of the world. We pray that where there is injustice, justice might prevail. 
that where greed is so powerful, generosity might take over, that where hate seems invincible, love might do its slow work, and that through our lives and the groups of which we're a part, the institutions we love and serve, the country that we love, that we might see all of these come to know the peace and the calm that is at the heart of God. Now in this moment of invitation and commitment, speak to each of us, we ask. Remind us that we're the church and that out in the place where we work, our teach, our shop, our live, we may be the only church anybody sees. And start us thinking at this very moment about how we're going to be the saints out in Caesar's household this week. For the sake of the Savior, amen. I don't really have anything more to add to this. This was an extremely thought-provoking sermon for me on, on many levels. I'm not going to elaborate on those thoughts here. I'll leave you to your own thoughts and how you might apply this to your situation right now. However, there's a quote that has continued to resonate with me after repeated listenings to Larry's sermon. The world doesn't need an example. It needs a Savior. And later, Christ calls us to pass the salt and turn up the light and trust the leaven to transform Caesar's household. And there's something revolutionary about that. There's no doubt we all find ourselves living in today's version of Caesar's household. I've grown tired of many things in this crazy year of 2020. But one of the things I've truly grown tired of is my own cynicism. And Larry's inspired me to try and leave that behind. I think it's time to rejoin the revolution. Pass the salt. Let's get after it. I hope you've all enjoyed this edition of a Thin Place podcast. If you have any suggestions or comments, ideas, please send them to thinplacepodcast at gmail.com. Our podcast is available to stream on Podbean, Apple Podcast, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon. Please rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice and share it with your social media platforms. All of us who love Larry would love for more people to discover the treasures of these sermons. Special thanks again to Larry and Linda Taylor for allowing us to rediscover these sermons in this way on A Thin Place with Larry Taylor. Until next time, this is Mike Young. Grace and peace.